Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Balls Podcast. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Andrew, for joining us. Um, you have a great, amazing YouTube channel for PhD and, and academic career and entrepreneurship. So I would like to ask you if you can tell us more about what you're doing and what YouTube video is about. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so I guess my YouTube channel at the moment is focused on the things that I, I know about and I'm doing. So first of all, it's about PhD careers. It's about, um, I guess, a, a really truthful and honest uh, dissection of what a career in research is really like. Um, and that's something that I feel like isn't spoken about enough and I feel like I can do that because I'm outside of academia and my current career does not rely on me um, sucking up to the system so to speak uh, but that, you know I, I try not to be down on it I think a career in academia is absolutely fantastic it's just you have to go in with your eyes wide open and also look at the other opportunities that are there um, aside a kind of academic career um, so there's there's one aspect that I'm up to. And then uh, since I left my postdoc about four years ago, I've essentially been teaching myself how to grow businesses. Um, some of them have been not so successful. Some of them have been a little bit successful. And so uh, what I do is I, I take um, a business idea and essentially I just run science experiments on it until stuff works and then I am slowly sort of getting better at growing an audience at um, producing products and info products and advert um, and sort of uh, an audience that I can advertise stuff to and uh, yeah that's that's really where I am at the moment so look I, I still use the scientific principles I've learned during my PhD it's just now I, I use the same principles but to grow a business that's wonderful so I would like to go back uh, Andrew, in, in the stages you had before where you are today, because I think that's the most interesting part, and I and that's why I think maybe many people can resonate with you. But before sure, go, going to that, because when we speak about academia, uh, of course there is a good part, and and by thing that we want to discuss the issue we had or how to improve the system, we don't want, we don't say that uh, for students don't come to academia. We want to improve, so that's the message we wanted to have. But mm -hmm. first of all, I'm curious to ask you, what the point makes you realize academia is not for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I actually left my PhD into an industry job. So I didn't go into a postdoc right away. Um, so I spent 13 months in a career um, doing a research and development for an explosives company. Um, and look, I, I really enjoyed it. But the one thing that, that drew me back to academia was the opportunity to teach and mentor and lecture. And that was the stuff I, I really liked. And um, getting in front of a room full of students and sort of seeing them um, sort of connect with my my topic was, was really kind of a... a 
a really nice part of academia. Um, where it decided, where it kind of like started to go sour for me was that I realized that the harder that the university wanted me, to, or uh, actually, let me take a step back. So um, I, I did two or three postdocs and I started to get my own money. I had my own funding for a year um, and that was all going all, like really well. Um, but yeah, where it started to kind of like go a little bit strange in my mind was like, hang on, I've brought in money, I've produced papers, but that's just the start. Like the system wants more from me. It wants my soul. It wants me to be here on the weekends. And it's a super competitive environment that selects for people that are willing to give up a lot of their life to academia, just because, you know, the more research you do, the more papers you get, therefore the more money you can bring in. And I thought to myself, is that a life that I want to lead? And to be perfectly honest with you, I looked up the, the chain of command to my PhD, uh, sorry, my postdoc uh, supervisors and the heads of department, and they did not look happy. And so at that point, I was like, if happiness is my main goal and it should be everyone's main goal in life, this doesn't look like the correct path, at least not for me. Wow, that's an interesting point. I would like to stop also again because I think that's there's a lot of many issues we have to say here. First of mm. all, the of course, we will go in detail because you did a lot of great video about the supervisor and and student relationship, the mentor and mentee relationship. But before that, uh, how how we can fix this number of hours? For example, now in COVID situation, we st we work from home and it's much better. Yeah. I think it's more productive. But but when you go to back when you stay longer in the office and you have to work in weekend and you are right, you feel that you are really drained and you have to work and there is no milestone and everything just. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. How, mm -hmm. how we can mitigate this pressure? Who is responsible for this pressure, do you think? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, ultimately, it's the university's desire for money that drives this uh, this pressure. So when I so I actually did did a TEDx talk, and you can find it by typing in my name and the illusion of progress. And for that TEDx talk, I researched about where that pressure was coming from like why why do people feel so drained like where's the drive coming from and i at first i thought it was my supervisor i was like oh supervisors are bad and then i spoke to the supervisors and they said the university expects more and more from us and so i was like hmm that's interesting so it's just kind of a feed down from you know you need money to support research absolutely but the the kind of career progression of an academic is bringing money, bringing papers that satisfies the university. Um, and therefore they allow you to keep your job and you get promoted. So this, this like continuous drive, I think comes right from the very top, which is the university's expectation that you bring in money and you have, that's passed down to your supervisor and the supervisor has to then sort of like drive you to produce papers and do research so they can they can attract more money to satisfy the university. Um, so really that, 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 and that was one thing I, I was really kind of like uh, upset with is that there needs to be a complete shift from um, this kind of mass produced, um, produce papers at any cost approach to let's produce less papers, that, but let's make them awesome. 
Um, and so really it's a systemic change that needs to happen and it needs to come from the university level. Um, you know, the, the pro vice chancellor, the deputy vice chancellors of research and all those people, there needs to be an entire culture shift. And, and to be honest with you, I just don't see it happening. And um, that's a truly good point because I see in my videos you suggested if there's so someone head of institute who want to change, do you think, for example, a university alone in, in the system can take strides to change how academicians are rewarded, but not only in the papers they publish? Or do you imagine what how this the system would look like, or the YouTube academia how it looks like? Hmm. Yeah, look, I don't have a, a great answer for you, to be honest. Um, the, what I would love to see is a system where where researchers are rewarded on not not necessarily papers and money, but we understand that you know that's an important part of it. But much rather like a, a kind of diverse metric where supervisors and academia uh, uh, academics are promoted based on their outreach their communication, their ability to produce good quality papers, not just the number of papers, yeah. their ability to mentor students, you know, have time for proper students. Like that is really where people need to be focused to, to sort of produce a good academic system. You know, it needs to be so diverse. And we do expect academics to take on a huge array of different types of roles and they should be rewarded for each of them um, but unfortunately at the moment it's just the money and the papers and that leads to very clever people gaming the system mm -hmm. and therefore focusing 100% of their energy on those things um, you know it's that's it's it's the typical thing you know what gets measured gets optimized and so if you start um, if you change the system so that people start getting rewarded for their mentorship efforts or their communication efforts and, and you kind of bring it together into a holistic kind of metric, I don't even know what that would be, but I think that's much closer to a better system for promotion for academia than just saying, bring in the money, bring in the papers and we'll leave you alone. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. So I would like to go again uh, if, if there's a student interested to be in academia and since you have this before going to your expertise now but uh, when you go back when you're a PhD student because I think one of the main issues is that the mentor-mentor relationship and if you can see a lot of stories about uh, how the supervisor is dealing with a student and sometimes the student also maybe is not qualified but there's a huge mm -hmm. issue happening here this power disparity so the first question is, because I think that's very important and it's still happening uh, today, is how you can select a supervisor and what is the style of the supervisor. So you make sure that you have someone who will support you and believe in you. Yeah, absolutely. So you've hit the two probably biggest things. The first one being someone that will support you. Mm. So uh, when I was selecting my PhD, supervisor i kind of focused more on the topic than i did the person i was like this person is interested in you know these topics and those topics interest me i didn't focus on the personality type and there is i think a huge thing to be said about students selecting based on the sort of supervisor they need some students are more than capable of going out researching you know checking in once a month once every couple of weeks um, and other students really they need to be micromanaged and that's just that they prefer that way um, and so I know that 
in each institution I've been in, supervisors do have a reputation for one of the other. Either they're very hands-off or they are micromanagers. And I believe there are students that would match both those supervising styles. Um, you just need to select the right supervisor for the way you want to work. Um, and the second point is in someone that believes in you, you know, like what does a good leader, and I think this is one thing that's, that academia really suffers from is yeah. bad leadership. Yeah. Um, you know, a leader doesn't demand anything of the people below them. They show the way, they support that person. They find out what motivates the person that's working uh, with them or for them. Um, and they do their best to help encourage that person to be the best scientist, in this case, academic they can. And I think that's not what we're seeing. At the moment, PhD students and uh, master's students are arguably being treated just like, you know, workhorses in the lab you know produce us your results produce us our papers we'll slap our names on it as well um you know we, we, it's not to say that it's that that cold-hearted for everyone but it is something that i see um and if we move now to actually ensuring that academics who have phd students are good leaders then uh, maybe 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 it needs leadership training. Maybe it needs um, a whole new kind of level of, of um, guidance from the university system. But yeah, that's how I would choose a university supervisor, PhD supervisor, is someone that first of all you like their leadership style, and secondly, someone that you genuinely believe has got your back. Yeah. Someone that will actually support you when things aren't going well in the lab. When things, when you're writing, you just need that little bit of encouragement. That's the sort of leadership we need in academia at the moment. And fortunately, it's just too few and far between. Yeah, I think that's a very serious point. And I'm also this question I'm asking you because when we see the head of the lab or, or BI, I don't know if the, there's no qualification how you make sure you are a good supervisor. You didn't get yeah. any qualification. And, and, and that's yeah. interesting because when I was teaching assistant also in my university, I didn't get any training. It just was by, by nature, you have to go and, and do what you can do. And that's, that's ridiculous, mm. to be honest. How, how you make sure you're a good supervisor? Mm. How you make sure you're not a psychopath person? Maybe you're intelligent, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sorry to say that, but of course there are excellent <laughs> people. I'm working now with excellent people, but yeah. before that, mm. it was a, a tragedy. So how you Absolutely. make sure this person is qualified to be a leader for a group? Yeah, that's really tough. And, and once again, it comes back to how difficult a job of an academic is because we ask them to fill so many roles. We ask them to be teachers, lecturers, intro introverts, super focused people, but then also go and talk at conferences. And now we're asking them to be good leaders on top. So we are really looking for, you know, the 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 diamond in the rough of of people and and someone that's able to kind of like get across all those facets but that said i feel like leadership is something that can be learned it is something that that requires unfortunately a little bit of ego death um good leadership requires the leader to realize that they work for the people beneath them and not the other way around that requires ego death it requires someone to really reflect on why they've they're researching why they're helping people um and i believe that's something that can be taught and something that can sort of um be 
uh, I guess, workshopped with academics. Um, whether or not they're open to it is another thing because, uh, you know, once again, I, I stress that there's loads of really awesome people to work with, but you do hear horror stories about egos in the lab and horrible supervisors. And to, to expect them to go through some sort of leadership training, I don't think would be unreasonable um, before they're able to take on PhD students. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So if I ask you now, maybe the tips for successful graduate school, if you're supervisor from the heaven or hell, so in both scenario, how you can finish your PhD in a successful way. All right. So um, I think I think a PhD. Someone told me once that a PhD is like eighty percent effort and twenty percent brains. And that's kind of like completely opposite to what a lot of people outside of academia think. And so, uh, and look, I, I would even push it a bit further. And since my sort of going through doing a PhD, I would say that it's probably 95% effort and 5% brains. Um, and a successful PhD, you know, relies on a support of a load of people, your supervisor, your friends, your family, you know, it is a little bit of a sacrifice of your time. So a successful PhD starts with a successful foundation. It mm. starts with making sure the people around you understand why you're doing it and understand that maybe for a little bit of time, um, you are going to be hyper focused on this three year or four year project. Um, and being clear and having those honest conversations is the perfect sort of foundation for starting a PhD. Um, and then, then, you know, it's all about effort. It really is. And it's something that I see a lot that, um, unfortunately early PhD students in the first and maybe early second year do take their foot off the gas. Because remember these people have finished undergrad. They've put a lot of effort in so far. And now all of a sudden they've got to put in even more effort. And so a lot of them go, you know what, I've got three years, I'm gonna take my foot off the gas a little bit and maybe I'm gonna coast. Um, and it's at that point where it's hard then to rebuild up the momentum. So I believe it's about consistent effort and it's not about working, you know, 12 hours in the lab or mm. whatever. It's just about consistent effort. One thing I like to say, and the one thing that I stand by now and I live by is there's one action that will get you to probably 90% of your success. So early on in your PhD, that is being in the lab and doing experiments, designing experiments, doing experiments, um, collecting the, the data and the results, tabulating it, understanding it, moving on. That is the sort of day you need to design. You need to be really strict with yourself and be like, I am spending, you know, I'm not going to sit here on Facebook. I'm not going to sit here on Reddit or YouTube. Yeah. I'm going to go in the lab and I'm going to dedicate, you know, you can say I'm going to do an hour and a half to two hours in the morning and an hour and a half to two hours in the afternoon of pure experimental work, whatever mm -hmm. that means for you. And you do that consistently and you'll be amazed at how quickly you build up momentum data and then when it comes to the back end, it's the same rules, rules apply, which is now you're in writing phase, whether that's publications for peer review or it's your thesis, but design a day that gets you to that. And the only way you do that is by writing. So yeah. you design a day where you are mainly writing, you know, work with your natural habits. So for me, when I was writing, I would spend an hour and a half 
or maybe about an hour in the morning writing, have a little bit of a break, another hour and a half to, or like to maybe an hour, an hour and a half, then lunch for a good hour. So it wasn't about torturing myself with yeah. by doing these long stretches of like 12 hours of intense writing, but it's about being consistent, produce habits that get you to your goal. And you could leave, you can do nine to five in the lab if your supervisor allows you. You can do, you know, you can have Saturdays and Sundays off. Yeah. I don't think a PhD requires you to give your entire life and it shouldn't. So consistent effort throughout your entire PhD will be far more beneficial than cramming it in um, into these monster kind of horrible lab sessions or writing sessions. And really that, I think that's the secret is, yeah, consistent effort, whatever it is, whether it's in the early stages experimentally and in the later stages in terms of writing, even if you don't feel like it in the writing stage, sit down for an hour, turn off everything, turn off every distractions and just write. I would say that's probably my biggest tip for finishing a PhD. Yeah, that's a great, yeah. So um, I would like to go now when you finish your PhD and that's your story, mm -hmm. part of your story. You don't know where you wanted to do, where you wanted to continue in academia or maybe different mm -hmm. places. And maybe I wanted to check with you um, how it's hard to take a decision to be uh, entrepreneurial later and first uh, to create content. And I know that so you, t you took two years to come to the decision that you're going to leave. And that's, I think it's a hard decision and not easy. Yeah. So if you can tell us more about this transition, because I imagine some people, I see some stories from people um, in late 30s, they want to leave academia, but it's challenging. They don't know where they can go. Maybe they're overqualified. And it's kind of, it's just like, uh, they don't know where they have to go. They lost the, the, the calm where they have to go in their life mm -hmm. after leaving yeah. academia. Yeah, look, it is incredibly tough. And uh, the first thing is that, I started, and you're right, I started leaving academia two years before I actually left. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I kind of looked at my skill set. And what I recommend everyone does, even throughout their career, academia or not, is do like a SWOT analysis on yourself. So a SWOT analysis is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Mm -hmm. So what are your strengths? Make a list of them, maybe make 10, put as many as you can. Are you good with people? Are you good at communicating? Are you good with data? Um, are you good at experimental work? Um, and then you've got weaknesses. So what do you not really enjoy? What are you not really sort of that fond of doing? Um, and for me, it was uh, anything super introverted. I didn't really like analyzing the data. I, you know, my strengths lied with communication and speaking and, and, you know, getting people excited about whatever I was talking about, science or not. Um, and then look at the opportunities you've got based on those strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And then look at whatever threats. So it would be silly of me to try to become a data analyst because it is a threat to, uh, you know, essentially it's a threat to my progress because it doesn't lie with my strengths. So mm -hmm. there was a moment where I was like, I should become a programmer, right? But that is a threat to my progress because actually I don't want to be a programmer. I just like learning new things. My strength is learning. So um, yeah, I need to just align all of these things. And what happened was, is I looked at all of that. I did my SWOT analysis and I was like, okay, communication is my thing. Mm. But I had no idea how to get to becoming like at the time a science communicator is where I was headed. 
and uh, I decided to just start a blog. It was a rubbish blog. It's now <laughs> deleted, but yeah. I spent hours writing about science on it. Um, and so what I did is I spent about six months writing a couple of times a week about science in my own voice. It was kind of a bit comedy related. It was, I was trying to be funny, make it a little bit different. And then once I had that portfolio, I started applying to different things. I applied, um, I sent off a, a, a pitch to an editor at Science Alert. Now Science Alert has got a readership of, at the time of about 10 million people. And I was like, oh, I don't know how this will go. But because I had this silly blog and this weird sort of like comedy twist on it, they called me up and they were like, what? On? They actually said to me, we didn't think you were real. This is why we wanted to have the conversation because no one talks about science like this. Mm. And uh, that opened up the door to a little bit of freelancing with them. I also applied for an internship at Cosmos magazine in Melbourne. Um, and I was lucky enough to get that. And so without the blog and the, write, the, the writing skills that took me about two years to build up, um, I wouldn't have a portfolio of evidence to show people and give me a little bit of credibility so then I could leave into a career that I thought I wanted. Mm. Um, and so really, it yeah, it can take two years to identify what you want to do, work out a path to get there. And uh, I've been a huge fan of, of stoic philosophy. And once you find something you want to do, you should try to do that every day. And so for me, it was about communicating science to the masses. And that's exactly what I did is I started doing a little bit every day on my blog, doing yeah. a bit of research for an article, writing an article, publishing an article, producing some images for that um, little uh, blog post, and then just repeating that, but doing a little bit every single day, just, you know, half an hour to an hour. Um, and that built up to a portfolio that enabled me to leave academia because I got a Cosmos, yeah, the internship, which was my perfect excuse to just leave academia. Um, and so, look, there's no easy, simple answer to get there, but it's completely possible. And the one thing is people were saying to me when I left, they were like, I wouldn't know what I would do. Mm. And I acted so brave but I was shitting myself because I had no idea either. They were like, oh, it must be so great for you to know what you want to do. And the, the truth was, I just went, oh yeah, no, it's really good. But I had no idea. I, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know whether I actually enjoyed science communication, yeah. but I started down that path and it's led me to you know all sorts of different cool places, now entrepreneurship um, and just starting in a direction is so important. Yeah. Just just doing is like execution will get you places. Um, it may not be where you think you'll end up, but it will start the momentum. And uh, yeah, it took me two years and then I was comfortable enough to leave, even though I was still scared. Uh -huh. That's wonderful. Uh, I, think, I think that's really interesting because um, I think for science communication, um, it's sometimes maybe uh, underrated in academia. I, I mean, not everyone saying that, but there is a perception even for, uh, if you see, for example, Cosmos Series by Carl Sagan, he, he was mm -hmm. 19 years because of the Cosmos Series at Harvard. I, I, I think something like that happened. But do you think how science communication is perceived in academia in general? Because sometimes academicians uh, 
don't have the facility to to speak general public and and simplify what they're doing. Mm. So um, my startup Verbalize.science was one of the first businesses that I launched, mm-hmm. and. Uh, there's there's a saying in the entrepreneurial world is like you don't have to have the best hamburger you just need to have people hungry for hamburgers right right so yeah. that you try to find your hungry audience for your thing and to be perfectly honest with you based on the customer like response to verbalize I should have never started it because mm. scientists are not actively seeking to pursue communication of their work Mm -hmm. they see it as a nice byproduct but they don't see it as something that is fundamental to their success because academics are promoted on producing papers and bringing in money there's an argument to say that communication does help do those things but it does not do it directly it's not like produce a youtube video end up with grant money you know, it's a much more sort of like long-winded process. Um, so yeah, I don't think uh, science communication is as well recognized by the scientific community at the moment, but I believe that that is changing slowly. Um, I believe that because there are companies like Altmetric who are Mm -hmm. owned by digital science who are trying to give academics and um, academia the ability to see the impact of their work on the wider world. So that's about it being mentioned in the news, about it being tweeted on social media platforms, on videos. Um, That's the sort of stuff that I think is slowly seeping into academic promotion and grant funding applications, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not quite there yet. And I joke with another science communication friend of mine who's got a a startup which is brilliant called Animate Your Science. Um, And we we believe we're early. Um, It will happen, but at the moment, it's not perceived as fundamental to the scientific process. We know like people that like science science communication and, and are all for it, you know, we know when we can see the power of communication but scientists aren't there yet. They will get there, I'm confident. Maybe in five to 10 years, we can have the same conversation and we can say that you know academia um, is very much about communication, but I think it's gonna be a slow journey to get there. I totally agree with you. I think science communication is much more important when you, you really take a text for funding from the general public. So I think that's something, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with you. So maybe I want to touch again about what opportunities beside science communication for students listening now, maybe confused, what could, what could be the thing I'm passionate about? You say something about the strengths and weakness, and that's something mm. wonderful. But what could be opening uh, uh, to open eyes that you can go in this direction or this direction beyond science communication? What could be possibilities mm-hmm. uh, from your expertise? Yeah. Um, So one thing I recommend for all students before they enter a PhD or, you know, in the first one or two years is have a get out plan. Mm. Like, and so part of that get out plan is to even if like a lot of people don't know what they want to do and that's absolutely fine. Like 
I, I start my own businesses because I don't really like having a job. Um, but there are some people that just don't understand, like don't know what they want to do. And so what I recommend people do is try a load of things. Mm. Like they say that passion isn't found, it's curated. And mm. so what you've got to do is find something that you like. So first of all, start with, start with that strengths and weaknesses analysis of yourself. Normally what people like aligns with their strengths. And so then just start to look for opportunities to do more of that thing. So it could be that like me, you like communication. Well, that's great. Do more communication of stuff you like. It could be for other people that they really like the the kind of legis legislative nature of a lab environment, you know, like standard operating procedures and keeping the paperwork in order. And it may be then that it could be like a patent attorney or something like that could be something they, they would really find interesting. Um, it may be that they actually just really like lab work. And there are loads of opportunities to do lab work in industry. Um, and, you know, it, it may not be the, the thing about that one is it may not be in the city that you want to live. That's one thing that I found. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say is if you're unsure, try a load of things early on. Um, mm. One thing that I really like about some universities, I think the University of South Australia started doing it, um, is that they allowed PhD students to sit in in undergraduate lectures mm -hmm. so that they could then just, you know what, I'm going to turn up to a French lecture today. You know, I remember doing French in high school. Maybe that would be really cool. Mm. And they let them go there. Or... Maybe you could um, sit in a lecture and be like, you know, first year medicine. Maybe medicine's your thing. Um, and just go and find something that, that gets you a little bit more excited and then give it a go. Start trying to learn a little bit more about that stuff. Maybe you could uh, practice the skills that you need to build up a portfolio. Um, and then you can use that to sort of leverage a, a, an internship or at least show whoever is employing in that area that you you have an interest and that you've been doing it uh, for a while f under your own steam. Um, so yeah, look, it's it, there's no easy one answer, but tr if you're unsure, I think the take home message from that is try everything you think you will enjoy and don't worry if you don't enjoy it, just keep moving until you find that one thing and mm -hmm. then just keep doing it. Yeah, that's a great. So if I ask you for the challenges as a science, uh, science communication career, of course, mm -hmm. you, you enjoy what you're doing. And that's something I think you will not feel that you have to work every day because you enjoy it. But mm -hmm. still, what could be the challenging uh, part or maybe something you still face in your career, in your science communication career and entrepreneurship? Because there's a lot of mm. disappointment sometimes. And yeah. Oh, it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the one thing that that comes with growing businesses um, is a lot of failure. Mm -hmm. And failure comes in so many different forms. You know, is it that, so I've got a web application that uses artificial intelligence tools to kind of help simplify language. Mm -hmm. um, it could be that that doesn't work and I failed. You know, it could be that I, in my first round of, um, tests with scientists, they just didn't like the application, the web app I produced. And so that's a failure. It could be now, you know, now I'm about three years into this journey 
And I still don't think we've hit the nail on the head when it comes to what they call the business market fit, which is, does my product actually solve a problem that enough people have? Um, and it's, you know, it's just failure after failure. But, you know, someone once said to me that it's success is about failing, getting up and moving on. Like that's how success happens. It isn't about sitting back and, you know, the amount of people that stop after they reach the first hurdle is incredible. There's just so many people that given the slightest kind of thing, the slightest barrier, the slightest failure. Um, yeah, so for me, it's been trying to find business market fit. It's been trying to excite scientists, like exactly what do scientists want? Um, and now moving forward with my with my YouTube channel, um, I've got a couple other small business brands that I'm growing as well. Um, and so each failure I learn from, Mm-hmm. And I move that to the next business and I try not to repeat those mistakes. They're different mistakes. And the great thing is, is that as you grow businesses, um, it doesn't get any easier. The challenges just change. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I, the, there are so many varied issues. But the important thing is you pick yourself up after each one. You let yourself have a little moment where you're disappointed, you're frustrated, you're upset. You acknowledge it and then you allow that to sort of like propel you into the next phase of that project. Um, and yeah, look, science communication is a tough gig just because scientists don't want to do it. I think mm-hmm. that's the reality I, I had to face a couple of months ago. Um, And so that's what sort of like spurred me on to diversify in terms of my business interests. Um, Oh, and another point that I found out about myself that I think is is valid for a load of people is as scientists, we get completely trapped by our egos, by our own perception of ourselves Mm -hmm. that we, we have to stay in science. Mm. Like my first business was even was science communication not communication in general, not a marketing company, but science communication. And that's because I couldn't let go of a little part or a massive part of my identity at the time, which was being a scientist. The Mm. world is a massive place. There are countless ways to make money, earn a living, get a career. There are millions of jobs with different things. And I wish that I had opened my mind up and let my ego go earlier so that I was open to growing the brands that I'm really enjoying growing at the moment. The first one is a beard brand. It's beardgrowingpro.com. So I grew a beard and I was like, I'm going to write a blog about this. And now I'm growing a a beard business. Um, Mm. The second one, which is relatively new, is like droneflyingpro.com, which is I got a drone. I was like, I love this. I'm going to share my knowledge with people. They have nothing to do with science, but I enjoy it just as much. And it took me too long, took me four years to actually go, you know what? The things I do in the future don't necessarily need to involve science. Wow. I think that's a really interesting point. It's about ego. We still have the identity that you, Mm. it's kind of ego, but you don't know this is your identity and you can't go outside this shell or a shelter you have your own self. And I think it's something, yeah, many people, myself also, I can resonate with that. So, but mm. how you can recognize that? Because it, it takes time, to, you are right, it takes time to recognize that you may be under the ego that I can't go outside this. Because mm. one of the question, how you can find intellectual fulfillment outside academia, and there's mm-hmm. some answers 
which is why I was shocked that you can't find intellectual fulfillment outside academia. It's impossible. Mm. And you said that you still have the identity as science, but you still wanted to bridge the gap to rewall it and take both of them to create something wonderful. So mm -hmm. how do you answer this? Because there's still the mentality you can do science and other forms outside academia. Yeah, that's absolute rubbish. Um, yeah. I think one thing that people are told, especially in academia, is that acad academia and science and research holds the the answer to your creative and, and problem-solving needs as a scientist. Mm -hmm. But really, these people that we identify as scientists, they're problem solvers. They're yeah. not solely science problem solvers. They're good and they've been trained in a way that allows them to look objectively at issues and overcome them. And honestly, the, the biggest things, the biggest successes that I've had with any of my business uh, pursuits is not, not anything other than my ability to problem solve. Um, and science and, you know, the it's so fulfilling you know like i get that i get actually a bigger feeling mm -hmm. solving a business problem than i do an academic problem than a science problem it's exactly the same skills i break it down i thought form a hypothesis if i do this i should see this result and then i perform that test um and so this idea that you know, you, you can't get intellectual fulfillment outside of academia, I think is completely wrong. Um, it's a different type of intellectual stimulation, no doubt, but mm. you can still find a huge amount of satisfaction in solving problems outside of science. Yeah. Um, you just have to go find the ones you want to solve. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. We are close to the end. We have a couple of questions, but the first one I'm curious to ask you, do you think we can have an institution beyond academia? And because sometimes there's an, the, the choices we already have sometimes industry or maybe science communication or academia, do you think we can come up with an institution that may be more, uh, maybe more fair and maybe science communication is more appreciated? Do you think that something comes to mind or we can have one day something beyond academia? Do you think mm. something could happen like that or is this just something like fantasy? I hope so. Now, the one thing I've learned about academia is that they are massive, bureaucratic, glacially slow-moving bastions of uh, tradition. And I believe we'll get there, but it's going to have to take a lot of force from external influences to get yeah. them to change. Um, once again, coming back to the metrics things, if we give academics and universities more metrics than bring in money, we will see that accelerated. Um, but until that time, I think people will just carry on in, this, in the systems that we've created without sort of thinking beyond the limitations that that's created. Um, so yeah, look, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm not, not overly optimistic that we'll see an institution mm. that fully embraces every aspect of academia which includes in you know my passion which is communication um anytime soon yeah that's a that's a good point yeah so if i ask you what, what one quality you have gained while working in academia and for now in, in science communication entrepreneurship what the thing you have to maintain in your journey and you have learned it the hard way yeah 
Um, oh, the, a hard way. So um, I think the one thing that has helped me move forward in everything is learning. Mm. Like my in undergraduate, I think you learn how you learn. You know, I'm a very mm. visual learner. I need to write stuff out a lot. Um, and so I learn how best I learn. And now when I when I get to a problem, I actually learn my way out of the problem. Um, and so, for example, you know, verbalized science, I needed to do an app. So I actually learned how to code, not because I wanted to become a coder, but because I needed to learn how to code to solve the problems that I was having. Then I mm. learned about marketing and then I learned about um, business relationship and then organizational structures. Um, all of that stuff requires you to have an insight on how you learn so you can learn your way out of problems. Um, in terms of the, the hardest one to learn, I think was your, your add-on there, or the one that was the, the toughest was, um, I, think, I think the one thing that I learned too late was that the market ultimately decides your success. Mm. Um, there's no point you forcing your ideas on a market that's not willing to listen to them. Yeah. Um, you have to find a common ground to, to either sell your product or, you know, service a, a certain market segment. But yeah, one thing I learned is that, you know, good market, marketing materials means nothing um, until you actually listen to what the markets want. So yeah, listen before you try to do anything. That was my biggest mistake. Don't get taken away in all the excitement, like listen to people, yeah. understand them and then act. Yeah, that's good, good advice, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was the life changing for you? Mm. Oh, all right, just give me a second. I'm sure there's something in the, in the deep, dark recesses <laughs> of my mind for this one. Um, I think, I think the, all of the life-changing stuff that I've read recently, or maybe uh, maybe even later, you know, early on in my PhD, came from books, came from self-help books, and, and I, I mentioned that I've been a, you know, a, a fan of the, the Stoic philosophy. Mm. Um, but really, the the biggest thing is you can cause yourself a lot of harm and worry and anxiety by trying to control the things you cannot control. So it was really life-changing for me when I realized that a lot of my anxieties and a lot of my issues were because I was trying to control something that was not within my circle of influence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can influence stuff outside by doing stuff that you can control, but ultimately that life-changing idea is, yeah, you. Don't drive yourself insane by trying to control the things you can't. Just work with the things you can and own that. So, for example, one of my friends, um, he really wanted a grant. And his plan was to get a grant last year in, in 20, no, 2019. Mm. And clearly that's, you know, when you think about it as an external factor, then you go, well, I can't control the grant application process, I can't control who um, looks at and uh, peer reviews my application. I can't control the outcome, but what I can control mm. is producing the best grant I can produce. 
And once that is submitted, I have done the bit I can control and I should no longer worry about it. The next thing I can control is the next application. So I can do that. Um, so yeah, I think that's one thing I'd like to share is um, just focus on the things that you can control. Um, your life will be far less noisy and much happier if you stick to that. I can't agree more. I think that's really powerful advice and make a lot of people more happier or satisfied in their life. Thanks I so much, so. Andy. I think I can't recommend more again about uh, YouTube videos. It's really informative and yeah, I think I wish they are more longer because they are really interesting <laughs> and informative. But I understand, just very short. And but I, I, I recommend everyone listening to uh, subscribe to YouTube channel because really, it's really important uh, channel. So yeah, thank you once again. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.